Okay, we are ready to get started. I don't have any special announcements other than my voice is escaping me. I'm starting to lose it. So luckily, I'm not the one doing most of the speaking this evening. But when I do speak, please bear with me. And uh, without further ado, Robert has another lesson in Acts for us. Okay, today is going to be slightly different. We are going to finish the last little bit of chapter two that we didn't finish last time. And I was going to move right into chapter three, but instead we're actually going to kind of take a minute to discuss some things, which I rarely do, but just bear with me. Um, let me play the recording again for those last few verses. It's going to pick up maybe one verse before our actual reading for today. Here we go. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Acts 2, New English Translation. Okay. So, like I said, we're going to finish that up. Just know that I am aware nobody signed up for like a two-year study of Acts. And at the current rate, that's kind of where we would be. Certainly, the, we're going to pick up the pace and, and we're going to start covering like a chapter, a, a session or whatever. So just know that I am aware of that. But I did want to kind of take a break today and you'll see what I mean by that. But first, as I always do, let's go through the text. Let's discuss some of the more technical issues and then I can be controversial at the end of this. <laughs> okay. So, oh, Matt. I, I did actually think of one thing, and this was an oversight error. Sorry to interrupt you, but it is kind of a top of the, of next week is Good Friday, or not Good Friday, Black Friday. Are we doing a Bible study next week? I don't think we should. Being okay. the holiday, I think is tricky for everyone. I think that's probably a wise plan. So my apology for... um for interrupting the study here, but yeah, let's plan not to have a study next week and we'll resume. What would that be? December. Let me look at the calendar here. Um, December 1st, we'll skip December 24th or uh, November 24th and resume December 1st. I'll uh, issue another reminder at the end of the show, the, at the end of the lesson, the study. And, um, and I'll put a reminder on the website as well. Anyway, th thanks for uh, bearing with the interruption there, but uh Awesome. Sorry, I didn't think uh, about it ahead I'm glad of time. You brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought of that earlier and then I forgot. Okay. Um, so we've so we heard the sermon by Peter, and then we get to the response. And what do we see 
is the response. It is this massive uh, show, essentially, of repentance, right? And I really want to to discuss this at least for a second because it is not as obvious as we might think that this is essentially the end of this chapter, the end of the story. So, right, the, the crowds are are convinced that Peter is telling the truth. They they go, oh my goodness, we've we've killed the king that God has given us. Um, and what must we do, right? That is the question. Um, first of all, I will say that Luke seems to be fairly objective in his narrative. In, you know, all throughout Acts, Luke will describe how the crowds reacted to the preaching, and it's not always positive. So Luke is not trying to paint this kind of overly flowery picture that, oh, the gospel is preached and people just join in and repent and all that. Certainly not the case. And we will encounter that through Acts. Um, but here's what I mean by repentance not being obvious. In the ancient world, most religions did not actually require repentance. Like if you joined some secret Hellenistic cult, it, it you know, it, they were non-exclusive. You could just kind of add it on to whatever beliefs you had. It didn't actually require a whole lot from you, certainly not repentance. So it is noteworthy that the reaction to the preaching of the gospel is actually um, repentance because at the end of the day, the message is, right, the, the kingdom of God has come and the reaction must be then, I have not been living by the law of God, I essentially, I'm sorry about that, and I am changing my ways. I will try to follow the Lordship of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that it's just your good behavior that saves you or something like that. I, I just made that clarification because I feel like otherwise people will uh, misunderstand me. But certainly there is this element of repentance. Okay. And what follows after that in the story baptism, right? And um, baptism, it's actually also a, it's also a non-obvious element of the story. We are just so used to it that we go, oh yeah, of course, of course they got baptized. But why are they being baptized? Where would the Jews get this idea? Now, of course, we have encountered this before with John the Baptist, but that only pushes the question a little further back. Where did John the Baptist get the idea of baptism. And really, what when you research this, what you find is that, you know, rituals of purification involving water were fairly common in the ancient world. Now, when it comes to the Jews specifically, sure, they have all these uh, ritual cleansings, but a baptism by immersion, really the only instance we see of that is when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, okay? So this it was this kind of complete changing of religions and of lifestyle and of allegiance, you know, of recognizing who is the one true God. And so notice that this is the ritual that Christians are using to baptize Jews. Jews would never go through this uh, baptism by immersion ritual. It was for Gentiles. So the fact that you have Jews that are going through this kind of baptism shows you how significant they thought of when it came to this decision, to this conversion to follow Christ. And now we will see here in a second, they worship at the temple. They're not rejecting the Jewish scriptures or anything like that. 
but they are saying this is a significant change. You you are now a different person with a different allegiance and a different set of beliefs, and and you know the per, the spirit is promised to you. It is a starting over, so to speak. And and again, I think we miss that because we're just so used to baptism that we're like, of course, of course, that's what you do. Now we might ask, and I'm going to be a little bit coy when it comes to this question, but we might ask, is how connected is baptism to forgiveness of sins? Because we do encounter that. In fact, we encounter in in this text that repentance and baptism are somehow connected to uh, forgiveness of sins. So, um, as you might expect, there are some Christians who believe that that baptism is crucial um, to forgiveness. Others um, say that it's not. I'm just going to stick to the text, particularly of Luke and Acts. And when you look at the data, um, what you find is that in every instance that baptism is tied to forgiveness, repentance is also mentioned. So essentially, there are no cases where baptism is mentioned without repentance. And then um, there are some cases in which repentance is mentioned without baptism. Uh, and tied to forgiveness. Now, you do with that data what you will. I'm not really trying to change your mind or change your denomination, anything of the sort. Um, but that maybe gives us, at the very least, what we can't say is repentance is always, literally in every instance, an element that is tied to baptism. So that is kind of what what is key to initiating your new life in Christ. Now, notice also that baptism is in Jesus' name. Another thing that to us sounds so obvious, we just move on. But if I were to ask you why, why do we say you're baptized in Jesus' name? Like, what does that mean? And what does that mean really, to, to put it like the internet would? Explain it to me like I'm five. Um, well, you know, without going into pages and pages of like historical things and in the ancient world, blah, blah, blah. Let's say at least the following. The Jews, they would call on the name of the Lord. This is all throughout the Old Testament. This would have been in their their prayers. Um, th- th- this was a common thing for them. Well, in that sense, normally when they were calling on the Lord's name, that was to call for his help, essentially. Um, right? You were, or, well, it could be for other things as well, but normally that would be the case. Now, notice this, that instead of calling on the name of the Lord, which normally would have meant Yahweh, now they're calling in, they're calling Jesus' name, which is huge. This again shows you the high Christology from right off the bat, the early church is thinking of Jesus as God. It really, any claim that that's not the case, they would have to disregard the book of Acts, which, I mean, scholars would try to do. They tried to say salated writing or whatever. But if you believe in the book of Acts, then that claim really doesn't hold any water. But what I'm getting at here is in the ritual of baptism, in the sacrament of baptism, that phrase in Jesus' name is actually in the passive voice. Let me put it in English. In English, I would not say, if I'm being true to the text in Acts, I baptize you in the name of Christ. It's passive is you are baptized in the name of Christ. And so this, what this formula of baptism, meaning in the name of Christ, what it's really conveying is who you're being baptized into, right? It's put in a very simple way. 
who your new allegiance is to, who you're recognizing as Lord and Savior. Um, this is a very, very relevant thing, and baptism is very meaningful. I fear that when I explain this, it almost sounds like some kind of criticism. I don't mean it like that at all. I mean it to clarify it, like uh, you're being baptized into the kingdom of Christ. Um, and then we do read that the promise of the Spirit is for the people who are baptized then, but also for their children and everyone near and far, essentially. I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Um, so this, again, recalls the passage in Joel that we discussed last time, and I will, you know, I'll read some of it. It will happen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be those who survive. Remember, that's a remnant, just as the Lord has promised. The remnant will be those whom the Lord will call, right? So the Lord is calling all who are faithful to him. Okay. So that is the response of, of the the audience, which again is really significant. I didn't want to skip that. And then we get to uh, a little like summary section, an exhortation, and then a discussion of what we might call the first church. Well, um, particularly, let me discuss this idea of, of the 3,000 people who, oh, actually, there's this exhortation there right before we discuss the early church about save yourselves, you know, save yourself from this wicked generation, depending on what translation you're looking at. And I do want to discuss two very brief points there. Uh, some later Christians, not actually modern Christians, I'm talking later Christians still in the in the ancient world, you know, a few centuries after this point, they took Peter to mean that um, those converts had to reject their Judaism essentially, and 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 they take it from this from this word generation, um, and that's really not the correct interpretation. And you will see here in a second they worship at the at the temple. They there's not like this this rejection of the old. Instead of the old continues into the new. Um, the other thing. That, that I think is worth clarifying very briefly is that also other people have taken this word of uh, generation, uh, genia, to mean race. Um, and so they take that to mean that the Jews are crooked instead of the generation is crooked. Of course, you can see the anti-Semitic implications of that. There's really no reason to take that word as such. That word means generation. It does not mean race. The Greek word for race is a different one. I don't think anyone in this group would hold those thoughts. But again, I mean, if we're going through the text, we might as well talk about those, you know, hot button issues or whatever. Okay. So 3,000 people converted and were baptized. Let me discuss baptism real briefly, but now not from a theological standpoint, but from a very practical standpoint. How would they baptize 3,000 people? Is that even feasible? Now, we could take the text to simply mean that 3,000 people came to Christ and then they were baptized over the next several days. I think that is an absolutely plausible reading of the text. But let's let's take it, you know, at face value. No, they were all baptized that day. Would that be a problem? Does that make this text false, essentially? And the short answer is no. Uh, the <laughs> There were many pools of water. 
in the temple area. This was even known to the Romans. You could read Tacitus, for example. He describes um, or mentions, does not describe them, but at least mentions the pools in the temple area. So there was plenty of water to go around to get everyone baptized. The other thing that we're probably picturing wrong is we think that there's, you know, like 12 apostles there, or even if you add the other 120, you know, helping out, literally grabbing every person and ba baptizing them at the time. And we see this with John the Baptist. That's really not what they were doing. They had these like mass baptisms. So the apostles would not lay hands on every single person. They would say, you know, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And people would dunk themselves in the water. Um, so having multiple pools, essentially the apostles could could oversee these massive baptisms. And people have done the math. It would only take a few hours for 3,000 people to be baptized this way. Again, not that this was on anyone's mind, but I just think it's important that we kind of picture the scene as it is happening, at least uh, as best as we can reconstruct it. And then, is it unreasonable to think that 3,000 people converted? Remember, this was during a festival that, by all estimates, um, would would draw a population to the city of about uh, half a million people. And just the Temple Mount could have hundreds of thousands. The higher estimates are about 400,000 people. Um, the lower estimates are at 200,000 people. Sure. Go ahead and take the lower estimate. 200,000 people heard the message, watched the miracle of Pentecost. Is it unreasonable to think that 3,000 people came to Christ? No, not at all. And again, Luke is not shy about reporting rejections. So we don't really have a reason in the text either to, to think that he's exaggerating in any way. So um, that happens. You have all of these, these baptisms. It is a wonderful response to, to the preaching of Peter. And what do we get next? We get a summary text of the early church. And what I mean by a summary text, I mean, clearly Luke here is summarizing a lot of data, more, more data than he has room to share with us. So he speaks in very general and very broad terms. This is very clear from the text. And so he's giving us kind of a overview of what people were doing. And what is it that people do when they come to Christ? Again, this is the quote-unquote first church. A lot of people would call it that. I'm not saying that's controversial. It's just, I suppose you could say that the 120, you know, waiting for the Spirit were the first church. Whatever. I'm not here to, to argue that. Um, okay. So you get this, what I will call ideal community, right? You get this ideal community. Um, these people are are acting like brothers and sisters. They're sharing everything with one another. They're praising God with one another. You know, they're praying. It just, it seems like the dream, right? And particularly, we have this idea of selling possessions and, and sharing everything materially. So let's maybe give some background as to why this outcome is, in a sense, surprising and in a sense, not surprising at all. Well, uh, in the ancient world, these these kind of hopes of ideal communities or tales of ideals community of ideal communities in the far past, they were actually not all that uncommon. Um, but 
in in the case of Acts, of course, what is the background? Well, it is the Old Testament. It is the Jewish customs. And in the Old Testament, we see many, many passages about being kind to the poor. This was, in fact, part of their law. Um, I quote a passage in Deuteronomy. I'll read it here briefly just to give us a sense of, of the background. It says... Uh, if a fellow Israelite from one of your villages in the land that the Lord your God is giving you should be poor, you must not harden your heart or be insensitive to his impoverished condition. Instead, you must be sure to open your hand to him and generously lend him whatever he needs. Be careful, lest you entertain the wicked thought that the seventh year, the year of cancellation of debts, has almost arrived, and your attitude be wrong toward your impoverished fellow Israelite. You do not lend him anything. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be regarded as having sinned. You must by all means lend to him and not be upset by doing it. For because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you attempt. There will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I'm commanding you to make sure you open your hand to your fellow Israelite who are needy and poor in your land. That's Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. I quote other passages in the blog if, you, if you're interested we also see this idea of being kind to the poor in the Psalms. The Psalms are actually very explicit that if you are kind to the poor, you will be blessed. I know we may feel a little uncomfortable with that, with this idea of like uh, almost like a, a reward system that God has imposed. But however you take those texts, like they're very clear that, that you should help the poor. Uh, maybe you think those blessings are simply spiritual and so forth. That's okay. But it's there. And then Jesus, uh, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, talks about charity. And by charity, I mean that. I mean helping the poor uh, extensively. Extensive. And so um, what, do you, what do we see whenever people come to Christ and you have this first community of believers? We see the culmination of all of these passages that say, be kind to one another, particularly the needy. And they come to Christ and it happens. It becomes real. It is, again, this reversal of Babel. It is this reversal of the hard hearts that um, people have had, you know, because also if you read the Gospels, essentially Jesus will rebuke people saying, you've ignored the, the weightier matters of the law, such as this, right? Such as mercy. Um. Okay, so the community, and I'm going to come back to the idea of, of charity here in a minute, um, but let's move on. What are the other things that the early community is doing? They are teaching, right? There's no denying this. They are learning from the apostles. This is crucial to the continuity of Christ and the church, right? The lessons, the teachings of Christ are being passed on to the church through the apostles. Um, and so essentially, the church is continuing the mission of Jesus. What would this look like? Um, again, given the cultural background, I think it's very safe to assume that these lessons would look a lot like the Midrashic expositions in the synagogues. And what would that look like? Pretty much like the sermon we just read from Peter. It would be somebody speaking about a text in the Old Testament and then expanding on it and drawing some conclusions and making some exhortations about what we ought to do because of that. Uh, now, because these were the lessons of Jesus, 
presumably they weren't always using Old Testament text. Maybe they were using the words of Jesus and then expanding on those. Um, but it it would not look all that different to modern preaching is, is what I'm getting at. Um, what else are they doing? They're engaging in fellowship, which is koinonia. Now, the reason that I point out the Greek word koinonia for fellowship is because this has become part of the modern uh, church culture. You're going to find this word in the Greek uh, all over places. You're going to find it in church buildings. There's probably like a koinonia room. And once a year, they may have a koinonia event. And if you go to a Christian college, the same thing. I bet that the very first event when they welcome freshmen is called koinonia. Um, I feel like I've been to every Christian institution in the world. So I speak from <laughs> experience. But um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a very common word. Um, but it means exactly what you would think. It means partnership, community, or sharing in something. Um, it is it is sort of a beautiful word in that regard. It is this idea of, of having harmony between people because they are sharing in something. What that something is, of course, we can speculate, is this commitment to God and His goodness. Now, much like sharing possessions, fellowship is really not a surprising outcome from conversion because it, it is what Jesus prayed for, right? This was, uh, or I'm going to read from John 17, not from Luke, because we studied John, so this should be familiar to us. So um, it says, I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, this church, right? That they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that they, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. I, I read that passage with a fair amount of sadness because, right, Jesus says, I, I pray that they are one in that because they're one, the world will see Christ essentially in us. And I think it, it's, it's obviously the case that we are not all that united. Um, so that is that is quite sad. Um, what else are they doing? They are breaking bread. Now, this phrase is going to be somewhat controversial um, because we were probably going to try to read certain religious implications into it. Uh, you know, breaking bread together probably means eating together, like sharing a full meal. Um, the bread as, as the most basic staple in their diet, it essentially can just mean food. They were sharing bread. That is to say they were sharing food together. Um, we can also go back to the Last Supper. Sure, of course, they share bread and wine in that meal. But notice those are elements of a bigger meal, of a full meal. So whenever they're breaking bread together, again, they are, they're hanging out, they're meeting at homes they're praying together, they're worshiping together, and they're probably eating together. Um, now, you know, you we might try to take it like, no, that we're breaking bread as in practicing the, the sacrament of the Eucharist of, or the Lord's Supper. And I'm not saying that they were or were not practicing that sacrament. I'm really not going to take a position on that. Um, but 
what the text literally is saying is they were eating together. I think that is the uh, the much more um, straightforward reading. And then kind of what conclusions you want to draw from that. That is absolutely up to you. Now, this eating together is, is revolutionary. This is maybe the most shocking thing out of <laughs> everything that I've gone through so far. Because remember that in the ancient world, to eat with someone was to some extent to befriend them. It was to make a connection. It was to almost make yourself guilty by association in the sense that now you have a connection with this person. So if that person does something terrible, you are to some extent implicated. Your honor is tied together to some extent. I'm not saying fully, but there is an important social connection there. And here you see people from all over their known world eating together, but particularly rich and poor. And that is kind of earth shattering. The fact that you have rich and poor eating together and, and, and having fellowship together. Very, very impactful. Then they pray and they worship. Um, this, you know, the word that is there for worship is, is the same word that you find all over the Old Testament to to referring to, sorry, to refer to worship in the temple. So essentially it's it's kind of a continuation of, of the worship that went on in the temple in the Old Testament and in the tabernacle. Now you see it here with the early church. And I wrote a little bit more about that, but I'm trying to go quickly because I do want to get to the end of this. I don't want to run out of time. Um, you do see that signs continue uh, throughout Acts. We're going we're gonna to see several times that Luke just summarizes that that signs went on. Um, I think the more noteworthy thing here is what kind of reaction did they cause? And they caused awe or fear, right? The, the literal translation would be fear, but awe is probably just as fine a translation. Um, and so this, this, what you know, what is this awe? What is this fear? It seems to be this attitude of paying attention to God, His work, his commandments, and his very person, who he is and what he is about. Um, and, and that's, I think, certainly what we see in the text. And the last kind of detail about this early church is we should notice that they met in homes and at the temple. I think sometimes we miss that. Now, certainly the common meeting place for the early church ended up being homes partly for obvious reasons. The temple got destroyed in 70 AD, so it's not like there was an option. But the reason I point this out is clearly now people were free to worship in the Spirit. We read this in John, right, with the woman at the well when, when Jesus essentially tells her, hey, the Jews are right, they do have the true temple, but a time is coming when you can you can worship in spirit. And the way that that's phrased, that makes sound spirit like a location, right? So instead of going to the location of the temple, you can pray in the location of the spirit. And we discussed that at the time, so you can go back and listen to it if you'd like. Um, but the reason I point this out is because we don't see this rejection of the old. We see a continuation between the old and the new. It is one religion, it is one thing, one thing is is the fulfillment of the other. And it is quite beautiful that way, quite powerful. And um, we, you know, we should pay attention to that. Okay. So what I said that at the beginning of this session is that I would do something slightly different today. 
I try to stay very close to the text and not branch out a whole lot because I am trying to keep this very um, kind of objective, non-denominational and all those things. But today I do want to tread in some dangerous waters because I think we need to stop and kind of in, in, and really see the forest. Um, sometimes I've received messages that say, Robert, you spend all this time going through details and you kind of, you know, don't focus on the good stuff. That's a fair criticism. It really is. I'm just trying to do the, the best that I know what to do. But I want to ask three questions. I want to ask about charity. Does it matter? I would like to ask about Peter's sermon. Should we preach the same way today? And third, should our churches resemble the Acts 2 church? I think that these are important questions. Um, and and I'll give you my take on this. I expect maybe some disagreement, which of course is always welcome. Okay. Does charity matter? And uh, I mean, of course, uh, my my answer is going to be yes. But I want to give you some some reasons for that because I, I really don't think that a lot of times we think of charity in its proper light or give it its proper weight. Let me read a passage from Luke 14 and then you know I'll give you some further discussion. Then when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. He said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place. Then ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so that you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. But when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, like you know already, normally in this Jewish context, people would repeat things. So I think we can safely assume both of these texts are communicating, if not the same idea, a very similar idea, right? So he's saying, hey, if you are important, if you are wealthy, humble yourself and, and elevate others. And then that second paragraph is is very much saying, hey, Invite the poor, invite the cripple, invite the lame, invite those those people who are, and I'm going to use this word, marginalized. <laughs> I hate how politics has destroyed that word. But I promise this is not about to turn into like a leftist, like bait and switch. This has not been like a two-year operation into turning y'all into leftists. <laughs> but okay, sorry. Um, now, let me read one other thing to kind of drive this point home. Notice how people in the ancient world described Christians, okay? And this is uh, Keener, Craig Keener writing, and he is quoting essentially all of these old thinkers. Justin, that's an old uh, Christian, claims that 
Former pagans converted to Christianity continued to share their resources in common and with the needy. In the late 2nd century, Tertullian remarks wittily that Christians readily share everything in common except their wives. The one thing, he complains, pagans were most willing to share. I think that is hilarious, but okay. In antithetical contrast to the apologist, idealized portraits, Lucian ridicules worshippers of the crucified sophist, aka Jesus, as despising all things indiscriminately and reckoning everything as common property, hence easily cheated. Celsus critiqued Christians for their effective appeal to the socially objectionable classes, as well as to the unhappy and sinful. Other sources also attest to Christians' continuing commitment to share their resources in the second century and beyond. To say that charity is part of the Christian church, I say it, I think is to say very little. Uh, I think it is incredibly powerful, and, and I would say more, but I want to move to other points. But I, I do want to make a rather inflammatory statement, which is to say, I think that the answer to many of our personal problems today is charity. And let me, again, let me phrase it in an inflammatory way, and then I will explain it. Are you experiencing depression? Go help the poor. Are you having trouble with your wife? Go help the poor. Are you dissatisfied with your job? Go help the poor. No, I am not saying that if you go help the poor, all of a sudden your wife will love you again, or you will be super joyful, or your work will be the greatest thing ever. But Christians have generally thought, and I think very truthfully so, that in helping the poor, there's a certain holiness that is cultivated in you that will help you face all of those issues. It, it really is important, and, and it is part of the church, it's what made it so effective. So that's one thing. Then um, should we preach like Acts 2 Peter? That's what I'm calling him as a sort of character. Acts 2 Peter. Should we preach like him? Notice that Peter has a wonderful sermon, right? It's got all the elements. This is me paraphrasing Peter. Listen, the scripture spoke of a day when the Spirit of God would be poured out on all people. As you can see and hear, because of the Pentecost miracle, that day is today. That also means that the end is near. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Who is the Lord? Jesus. How do we know? He did miracles among you. Also, you killed him using dirty tactics, but God raised him from the dead. The scriptures spoke of one who would not see the king. That's Jesus. The scriptures also spoke of a king who would reign forever, who would be exalted. That's Jesus. He has been taken up to heaven as king and savior. He will not lose. Save yourselves. Repent. Now, if you're expecting an edgy take where I'm going to go, well, I disagree with Peter. No, of course I don't. I am committed to the Bible and I think that everything he's saying is, is correct. My question is a slightly different one. Should we uh, share the gospel the same way today? And I think we have to notice that in Peter's presentation of the gospel, he, he appeals to a minor extent to the personal experience of Jesus because some had known Jesus, but to a much greater extent, to the fact that they believed in the scriptures. That was a given. He didn't have to convince them that the scriptures were true. We don't really have that luxury today. Now, it is true that many people have left the church in the last decade or so, and maybe some of them still believe in the scriptures, and we can appeal to them through them. Absolutely, and, and I hope that that can be effective. But we have to face the fact that uh, many people in the U.S. and elsewhere do not believe in the Bible. And so we have to approach them a different way. 
And we need to be ready to do that. I guess what I'm getting at is um, we, there's, there's of course, the theology that Peter's presented that I'm, I would not argue against for one second. But should we preach like he did? Maybe not. Only in the sense that he was preaching a certain context and we're in a different context. So um, I think that that um, should be said. And then my, the last point on my blog, it has so much text. I'm going to summarize it very, very, very briefly because I want to open this up for, for discussion. Should our churches look like Acts 2 churches? Now, if you're thinking, Robert, you now you're just trying to come up with questions. Um, if you are kind of in the Christian world, you know that this is actually a common thing to say, particularly in non-denominational contexts. And that's not some sort of attack, no one bit. I'm just trying to, you know, state a fact. Now, even some more traditional denominations are saying we need to be like the church in Acts 2. We need to be like the first church. We need to go back. So I did some light reading, you know, during the week. And, and I, I looked up, okay, so how do people describe this Acts 2 church? What is it that they're trying to get back to? And if I had more time, I would read more of this. I'm just going to skip skip through it and and just kind of give you my my you know 60 second conclusion which is to say really when you read at what people mean by by being an acts 2 church they're still cherry picking they're still kind of changing things to fit their theology and and what they would like to see happen and so forth and i don't even mean that as a criticism i just think that, that we miss the fact that in the early church, there was both word and practice, right? There was a pre the preaching of, of the gospel and being devoted to the, to the teachings of the apostles, but also this community that felt like family. And it is when we feel like family, right, that people can see Christ in us as a church, as a church together. Um, and maybe that is a lesson that we should pull from the text, regardless of, of you know, what else we, we pull out of it or not. So uh, with that, uh, Matt, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, as always, if uh, you guys have a question or a point for discussion, just write the word question in the chat. I will bring it in in the order in which we receive those. Uh, for my point of inquiry, I'm going to borrow a little bit of a concept from the chat, but I had the same sort of ideas myself. So um, on, on this, uh, this edgy take that charity matters, I'm going to ask you to steel man the normie position that charity doesn't matter. I guess for, I don't understand how that uh, I guess I don't understand how how you could take the opposite position, actually. And I don't mean like as a good thing. I mean, like textually speaking, uh, according to the scripture, how could you take the position that charity is inconsequential or unimportant? Ah, sure. So let me actually give you an example one of the texts that I that I cited in the last section about being an Acts 2 church, um, this is the one that, that starts with being an Acts 2 church in the 21st century, okay? Now, I summarized it, but I left all of the subheadings from the original source because I wanted people to see what this gigantic church institution, and I'm not criticizing it, what they took out of the text. They, they essentially, they, they say, hey, we have to be committed to the scripture. We have to be committed to the scripture, have to be committed to the scripture. And then their, their subtitles are, or, 
you know, other, um, you know, sections in the text are personal devotions, Sunday school, small groups, worship gatherings. Mm -hmm. So all they take from Acts 2 is we have to learn the text. Or, you know, like we have to know the Bible. And, and what I'm trying to say is that is like, that that's at best half of the story, at best. And that if we don't really practice true charity, if we don't really kind of become one with the poor in, in the context of the church, then... Now you are a leftist, become one with the poor. <laughs> I know that it's so cringy. I'm sorry. But I mean it like we have to have a community where we're totally divided. No, I understand. I just like the uh, phrasing, that's all. <laughs> you could you no, you should make campaign slogans, not to get too political, but you know, I, I see where you're coming from. I get I get you. Do you see the what I'm trying to yeah, yeah. kind of fight against? Yeah. I I think I understand. And we might have some more questions to that theme going forward here. Um Gilgamesh, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yeah, it's on this whole thing. There's a real simple thing people don't realize is I bring it up and I've, I've talked about this sin. It's people don't realize most people in the in this country and around the world don't know they're even sinning. Sinners can't tell they're sinning because they think, oh, I'm a good person, but they don't know they're caught in sin. And this is why, you know, it's like, okay, you do, let's say you don't do anything. I'll bring this up. Okay, let's say someone bumps into you and that person says, hey, Matt, you bumped into me. Apologize. You're then, normally people go, no, I'm not going to apologize. This is what gets people in trouble. They don't realize, okay, you may not have done something wrong. Just apologize. Just say, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't see you there. You know, people can't do that. It's like everything else. People can't put things, you know, they don't realize how much they're sinning and their pride. And that's why pride is like the mother of all sin and the deadliest of all sin, because people, when they're sinning, don't know they're sinning. A lot of people in this world don't realize that you could take the word greed, give it any name you want, you know, and it's like, you know, if I said, okay, greed, uh, another name for greed, capitalism, people would go, oh, no, 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 no. But, you know, you can take, you know, consumption with that, too. That goes, that's gluttony. Gluttony is all about consuming too much of something. You watch the world, watch people there. It's like, you know, you can see it if you're paying attention. It's hard when you're sinning to know you're sinning. And a lot of good people don't know they're sinning. And there are some evil people that it's easy to fall, that can manipulate you. Really easy to fall into sin without knowing you're sinning. And you'll go... No, I'm a good person. I would never fall for it. And trust me, there are a lot of people out there who straight up lie every day. Politicians are a perfect example. Politicians do one thing they're good at is deception. They'll deceive you to go, I'm a trust me, I, I have your back. And the moment that you trust them, what do they do? You find out that they're nothing but a liar. And I can say that about all these people that are running for president. They've all lied at one point or another and gotten caught lying about something mm -hmm. and then people still fall for it fall for them and they go i'm behind this person i trust this person it's like you know he lied right to your face and it's like that's what i mean it's like people don't know they're sinning and they fall into these you know it's like the whole thing with if you criticize israel oh my god you're an anti-semite it's like 
you do know that Zionists aren't Jews. And it's that's the simplest way to put it, is that Zionist, Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. It's all about the most narcissistic, evil people in the world. All right. Are narcissists. I, I, I do yeah. want to stay on topic. We're getting, I know. We're, I'm just bringing a little off into the politics. It kind but. of goes to the whole thing with sin. Okay. The biggest liars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on uh, awareness of sin, I suppose, is the general theme there. Uh, I mean, I will agree to that, that uh, many times. I will say that there's both kinds. Sometimes people know that they're doing wrong when they do wrong, and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, uh, both are true. Um, in not in relation to that comment, but I, I do want to point out. I um, and this again has nothing to do with Gilgamesh's comment, but I I have not mentioned politics when I'm talking about charity. I'm talking about charity in the context of the church. I think that was clear, but I thought no, I might no, as well I clarify to... before I get accused of being like a you know a liberal. Oh no. no. <laughs> wasn't bringing up the the part about you know the other stuff i wasn't going after you for the charity thing i'm just saying that most people and there are good people that don't know they're sinning and then you have the people who know they're sinners yeah. who manipulate and tell you oh i'm a good person and they're completely ready to stab you you know basically stab you in the back that's what i'm trying to point out with sin right. is good people don't thank know you. they're sinning and bad people know you're you're sinning thank, <laughs> thank you Gilgamesh. So, we got yeah, a lot of people no who are looking to speak here so i'll have to move on but uh okay. but thank you for night. the thoughts yep. uh-huh. uh jt you're up next and i might have uh, i think what i what i had to ask is along the lines of what you were saying in the chat so i apologize if i stepped on your topic but uh but feel free to elaborate if you'd like to. Are you there? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, excellent study tonight. I, I was not even going to attend. I was kind of tired. Um, uh, yeah. I just want to say about the uh, the three points that you brought up. Oh, and last week, yeah, I did say that none of that stuff that he uh, quoted from his sermon was in Acts, but actually it was. It just was the last part about the vaporous smoke and the fire and all that. That hasn't happened, but the first part did. Now with your three points. Yeah, and, and thank you, Robert, for not using the pulpit as a platform to push a leftist agenda like Tim Keller used to do. I appreciate that wholeheartedly. Um, no offense if anybody likes Tim Keller, but he would do that. Uh, yeah, charity, obviously essential. Uh, it's got to be spirit-led. This book, these Christians, these early Christians, they were all Jews. Um, notice that the first Christians are going to be Jews and the last Christians are going to be Jews. After the church is raptured, God turns his plan back to the Jews. First Christians were Jews. The last Christians were Jews. Uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to get that out of the way. Everything was spirit led. Where they went, how they worshipped, what they did in these groups, breaking bread together. Um, the spirit came down, empowered the church, and then they expanded. Right. So what we do now is an extension of what happened there. Everything we do, it started there because the Holy Spirit did not exist. It wasn't, it wasn't unified force before that. It was only for priests, prophets, kings in the Old Testament. It wasn't for everybody. But now here we are, all believers are filled with the Spirit. So we're led to do what he leads us to do because he's God inside of us. Why would we do anything else? So when you're talking about an Acts 2 church, he led them to do that. I go to one of those churches now. I have been for many years. My fiance Carmen, who's also on this, we met there. It's it's a house church. How much like we are to them, I have no idea. But we meet in a home the way they did. That's about the only thing I can tell you that's probably similar. The rest of the stuff they're doing, I don't know what they did. 
I also try to study the scriptures from a Jewish perspective without converting to Judaism, just like they did. And the Holy Spirit led me to do that. So it's all about what he's leading us to do. The same power that was in them through the Holy Spirit is in us now as believers. So there's no controversy about any of that. If you're a Christian right now, a saved, born-again Christian, and you're doing what the Holy Spirit's leading you to doing, leading you to do, there won't be any controversy. The final thing, and a lot of people use Acts chapter 2 as uh, proof of socialism being the best option. But in fact, this is how I've come to see it. You can disagree. Very shortly before this, Jesus gathered the disciples together. You can read Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. He told them Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in a very short amount of time. So it's not a big deal that they were sharing their possessions. They were all selling their house. There's not going to be anything there. Jesus, the Lord himself, told them Jerusalem's gone. It's going to be destroyed. Not a single rock is, or yeah, uh, a stone is going to be left upon another stone. So this whole thing about them sharing everything might have had a lot to do with that. That's all I got. Thanks again. I appreciate everything. You guys are great. Well, thanks, JT. Uh, Robert, do you have any thoughts in response? No, um, great comments. I, um, yeah, no, my, my, my only quote unquote response is really kind of adding to what he says, which is that sadly, many people do use texts like these to push for certain politic, you know, to say that, oh, then we, you know, we should have free healthcare or whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. And notice that I avoided that entirely. This text is about the life of the church. Uh, there's, to my knowledge, that there's not a single passage that they would be able to find in the New Testament that would say we must impose this politically on people. So I'm obviously not going to do that. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, lag. Go ahead if you're ready. Yeah. Uh, so my question is actually jumping um, back a bit to when... Peter is asking others to uh, be baptized. And one of the things that I've uh, noticed about that is I believe this is the only time within scripture that when uh, he recommends when baptism is offered uh, post John the Baptist, that when baptism is offered, that it is not in the name of the father, the son and the spirit, that this is the only time it is only in Jesus's name. I was wondering if you think there is a um, special reason for that significance beyond what we have uh, already discussed tonight, or if it, uh, if you think that's at like a emphasis made for, if it's not a matter of emphasis, if it's like a, I, I guess you could say uh, Luke emphasizing it after the fact, if like at the time it was. Uh, Peter may emphasize it uh, matter of uh, Jesus there, but that they essentially just left out of the text that he's saying the full formula that Jesus gave back in Matthew and that I believe is mentioned later, although I can't remember quite off the top of my head. Yeah, so uh, I didn't mention this, but and, and Matt, let me give you some background. Of course, Matt, you may be aware of this, but generally when when people are baptized, Right, they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, depending on which denomination you go to. People may be even dunked three times, not to get into any of that. But essentially, what what the question is? Hey, the the, the formula, the 
the baptismal formula seems to change between this passage and the other ones. And I I haven't found anyone who finds any significance in in that as far as like any theological significance. It just seems to be um essentially like like Lag is saying, maybe a change to just an emphasis. This uh, you know, these are Jews, um, and, and the emphasis that they need to really understand and receive is Jesus, uh, the guy that they just killed. Like, that's really the message that we're trying to get across. Um, in, but yeah, I, I, I think that that's it. I don't think that there's further significance, but maybe, Lag, you have uh, insight there that I don't. Did you have a uh, thought, Lag, or I can move on uh, if you were finished? I am finished with that question. I did have one hopefully brief uh, comment as well on the lines of the uh, charity and to some extent the uh, politics as well. I recall hearing you, Matt, say that you were going through Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you finished that or if you uh, didn't yeah, recall. I, I listened to the audiobook all the way through. That was 2020, I think, that I got through that. Yeah, so it's yeah. been a little I, bit, but I, I, there were several pieces of it that really stood out to me and added a lot of clarity, um, if not specifically on Christianity, on really important moral themes of the world that are, of course, rooted in Christianity through the author. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you would recall the part where he is talking specifically about uh, Christian society. He One of the things he notes is that uh, a thing that he found convincing for the truth of, Christ- of Christianity is that the apparent uh, political prescriptions for the problems of the world seem to be ones where everyone likes some of them and no one seems to like the sum total, which, if we are all uh, broken in different ways, seems to be like what you would expect the prescription prescriptions to actually look like and so i was wondering if you had any thoughts on this whether they are directly related to the uh charity ones that came up or yeah i can't remember that specific part of the book so that that escapes me a little bit but i suppose the themes of what you're saying make sense um yes yeah without knowing exactly what he said it's hard for me to offer more specific thought on that robert do Uh, you have any knowledge of that uh, particular work or that theme um, I've read Mere Christianity a couple of times, but I, I really, uh, I cannot, no, I, I don't have any insight to share on this spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I may be forgetting the precise work that it comes from. He said, uh, he definitely says that, but I, I may be mistaking that it was in Christian, Mere Christianity rather than one of his other things. No, yeah, and I, you might be right. Like I said, it's been a minute since I've read it. So there's, there's little I can add, but it is an amazing work. Really all his books are. Well, and just speaking from a political perspective from which I normally speak, I mean, the concept of charity at gunpoint, if it's the state's gunpoint or anybody else's, that erases the definition of charity. If you are not contributing to someone else on your own, voluntarily on your own behalf, not because you're being forced to or threatened to like that to me, that's always been the disconnect between people who say like, oh, look, uh, you know, Jesus or whatever religious teaching or whatever scriptural reference they're making clearly supported, um, kindness to the poor therefore you ought to support government policy a b and c okay it might be wise or good for me to give money to the poor and i will do what i can but the second someone's pointing a gun at me or threatening me with imprisonment if i don't go along with it well that's not charity anymore that's something else and so um yeah i don't i don't know how 
I can't sit here and tell you that's the correct understanding according to the scripture because I'm not a scriptural expert. But to me, just as a layman in the political sense, coercion is not compatible with charity. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, sure. So. And I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's part of what C.S. Lewis was getting at. His mm. point at the time, at least as regards charity, looked like it would be um, the society would look like what a lot of leftists think the society would look like, but it would look like that because they're without coercion. If every uh, everyone were Christian and following their faith as yeah. Yeah. prescribed. And well, it's, it's kind of so, like the concept yeah. of a voluntary commune. You know, you live in like a small little commune society. Well, the fact that it's voluntary erases the primary moral issue with, you know, communal living as, as imposed by government, you know? Um, right. So I, I can see the, the ideas that you're, that you're getting at there for sure. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, we do have just a couple more requests to speak here. Uh, I have time if you do, Robert. Yeah, I do. Okay, uh, I think Denby is up next. Let me double check that that's right. Yeah, it is Denby. Go ahead, Denby. Uh, you know, just first things first, um, charity means love. That's what it means. And uh, I think a lot of people nowadays don't know that. And obviously, you you can't do something out of love if you're being forced to. Yeah. You know, but my, my question actually is, uh, is about... Um, for you, Robert, and it's, uh, I don't know if you know, if anyone does know, I'd be interested. Um, as as some of you may know, the word host, hostage, and hostile come from the same root, and uh, there's a kind of, they kind of indicate there's a kind of ambiguity in, the, in them, because like a hostage is someone who's being hosted while negotiations or whatever is going on, and things if the agreement's broken, then the they're killed. I'm just wondering, Robert, do you happen to know if there is a similar kind of ambiguity, as far as you're aware, in the Jewish uh, culture, or or, the, or that at, at the time as there was? Because I want just it's something I've I've often wondered about is like because you know in our culture there is, there is that ambiguity, like hosting. It's like it's not it's it's often a, a kind of a grudging obligation say in, in greek culture it certainly was uh so the ambiguity as to host can be kind of positive and negative is that the, the ambiguity um i don't know that i'm quite following along but but if i'm understanding um, you know, hosting would have, I mean, I, I suppose it, you could say yes to that, to that in the sense that hosting was a, a privilege, but also a great responsibility. Like if you refused to host somebody that you ought to, that would have, that would have brought you great shame. So of course it was, you know, uh, it was optional, but, but if you were really supposed to do it and you didn't, that would have reflected really negatively upon you. So I suppose it could have that negative implication. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I was, I was kind of looking at like the, like kind of the, the, the tension between uh, something that's voluntary versus something that you feel kind of compelled to do and or could therefore perhaps resentful of 
you know, so that's one thing I was kind of curious about, because obviously um, Christian idea of hospitality usually, you know, does not include mere obligation, because if it did, then, you know, there would be that inherent, right, possibility yeah. of resentment for, so yeah, was just, that's, that's sort of what I was getting at, I was curious about. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. Honestly, Thanks. Oh, sorry, go ahead, um, Robert. Yeah, what Demi's getting at is kind of part of what we miss that, you know, this idea of, of of people being hosted in different homes, especially poor people just, you know, kind of commingling with with the rich people. This would have been truly revolutionary at the time. This would have reflected very poorly on particularly the rich people, the powerful people, um, a big like social faux pas. Um, and, and I don't think we understand that today because today nobody would be like alarmed if I hosted you know, if I invited a, a rather poor person to my home, but they would have been at the time. And most of the people were poor. So the rich people really knew each other at the time. I mean, uh, I suppose it is true today. It was just more pronounced at that time. But sorry, we can move on to the next question. Yeah. Uh, last question, I think, is generally specific. Generally specific. Go ahead. Good evening, Christians and those that are exploring. Uh, thank you for the study. It's I find it very enriching. Um, I'm touching topics that I've never really messed with before. So I got a bunch of notes that occurred to me to ask you questions, but I want to stick to the topic as much as possible. Um, in regards to you got Hebrews 13, 12, or I'm sorry, correction, Hebrews 13, uh, verse 2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, uh, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So that's the importance of, you know, being a good host. Um, you never know who you're hosting. Um, so going getting into Acts 2, uh, 41, you, you you were you were speculating that perhaps that it was a it was a mass baptism by water and i think that there's when you do a deeper dive by using the strong concordance and get into the the greek word uh it's in the greek if anyone has a strong concordance they want to look it up for themselves go to 907 i just learned this for myself and so again i'm you know listening to you and then i'm doing studying to show myself approved unto god not unto man but so you're you're hitting synapses and firing off all kinds of stuff, and I'll be as brief as possible. Um, so it says it, it's in the Greek. It means to make overwhelmed. Okay. So have you ever been to a church service where you just got the Holy Ghost just kind of overwhelms you, man? You just you can't really understand why. So this kind of happened to all of them. Now this wasn't a baptism for my for my studying and i and i could be i could be incorrect that this wasn't a baptism of water it was actually the baptism of the holy ghost and fire um and it, and it speaks to that here um matthew 3 11 um the biblical expression of being baptized with the holy holy spirit and fire and that's that's what i believe it's talking about there with the three thousand were in acts uh chapter 2 verses 41 through 47 and it also goes on to talk about how um, it also could be a um, a practice of ablution. It's a ceremony of like cleansing, like you were talking about, because they were getting ready to eat. So maybe that also is they were overwhelmed. They got the Holy Ghost on them, the fire of the Holy Ghost, and then they all sat down and basically broke bread together. So it might not be a water baptism at all. It just might be our lack of understanding of the purpose of what they're talking about. Okay. Um, so if I have a second about about charity um, and about being the lender and not the borrower, 
right? And these are the, I, I could give you the scriptures, I guess, that go with it. But um, do I have do you, do you guys? Is that okay? Yeah, assuming you can be, you know, fairly brief I'll, with the point. I'll yeah. be super brief. I'm not, I'm not necessarily expecting an answer now, or maybe sure. just maybe it'll throw it out there and God will re- respond to me later. Um, you, you know, we're told that let not your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So when you're giving, don't don't make a big production of it. Don't make a big scene of it, right? Um, and I, I see this practice, and and I, and I I kind of feel awkward even talking about this, but. You know, we have these events at a church that I used to be a part of, but I'm starting to see a whole lot of things that just don't line up with, with the scriptures. So there's been a parting um, where they would brag and they would do all these outreach events and where they're giving away $10,000 of bill pays and bikes and, and you know, and gift cards and all this other stuff. And then I, I thought it was weird because I'm listening to my, my old pastor talking about how somebody in the congregation was asking if they could borrow $10,000 and that they would pay it back in like two months. Now, this is a private conversation between a parishioner and a pastor that was then utilized from the pulpit. And it was kind of mocked almost. And I thought to myself, well, what exactly does that mean that we would be the lenders and not the borrowers? That means once you're a Christian, you don't borrow money from anyone. You always just lend to non-Christians. So what is it? And how do, how do we give away $10,000 to a bunch of poor people and then brag on it? when we're not supposed to let the right hand know what the left hand's doing and then just keep advertising it, advertising it, boasting on it. We're only supposed to boast on the cross from what I understand. So if, 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 if that really bothered me and didn't sit well with me, you know, when, when someone in the church was needy, has been at the church for a long time, has been tithing, has been, you know, for what I understand, you know, and then, and, and I struggle because it's kind of like some Creflo dollar, some Joel Olstein kind of prosper gospel crap going on, you know, where the, the money seems to only filter up to the top. And those that actually need it that have been dutifully tithing and tithing and tithing, you know, I don't want to be a quid pro quo Christian. That, that repulses me. I, I just want to be an obedient servant of the, of, of the God most high. And, and I'll leave it at that and just get your thoughts. Yeah. Robert, did you have any thoughts on that as it, I'd be curious as it may relate to scripture specifically. I think that humility or, or giving for its own sake rather than for sort of self aggrandizement or self promotion is, uh, is a good thing, obviously. But I'm curious, um, to add onto that, if there is uh, scriptural insight on that, is there any kind of scriptural reference that tells us that's the way to behave or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, like, like he said, uh, there is this scripture about, you know, whenever you give with one hand, don't let the other hand know what you're doing. That is to say, like, don't advertise your giving. But we also find other scriptures that are not um, like quite as on point, but certainly they have the same principle. Like Jesus uh, criticizes the Pharisees. I cannot think of where the scripture is at this second. But when, when he says you guys do all these things publicly because they bring you honor, like you you pre or you pray outside in the street corner so people will see you and so forth. If somebody can find it, like drop it in the chat. I cannot think of the exact words, but but yes, we we find several verses that that say don't. You know, if you give to receive honor, then you have received your reward in this life. Like that, that's what you were after. That's what you got. So that's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should be giving. Uh, you know, out of love, and generally speaking, that would mean not advertising it. I say generally speaking because, you know, 
sometimes for the right reasons, it might make sense to advertise like, um, like a GoFundMe, right? Yeah. Let's say that I said, Hey, I'm going to give 50 grand to this cost, but the way I'm going to do it is I will match every dollar that another person gives. I'm not doing that to receive honor or fame. I'm doing that to incentivize more giving. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just don't think that we should apply those principles too robotically, but, but yeah, certainly there's verses to that yeah. effect. All right. Thanks. Generally specific. Uh, we are all caught up on our request to speak and we are going on quarter past the hour. So we'll have to, we'll have to wrap it up there. But Robert, did you have any final thoughts before we close? If I can make a, 30 second final thought. I was thinking about your original question, Matt, when you said, you know, why, <laughs> you know, what's the steel man of the other side? You yeah. know, why am I saying it's a hot take to emphasize charity? Because as I thought more about it, I thought, well, if, you know, we have churches that essentially what they say is we preach the word and that's their one emphasis, right? That's their one thing that they do. Imagine if I did the opposite at our church, we, we do charity. That's what we do. That's all we do. We do charity. That second example would strike us as odd. It would be like, well, that's not really what a church is supposed yeah, to do. That's a 501c3, like, more... but it might not be a church. Yeah, <laughs> That's right, right? Yeah. We'd be like, that's not really a church. Yeah. And yet somehow we're okay with my first example, the example that only emphasizes word. And we're like, okay, yeah, that's a church. And, and the point that I'm trying to make, my hot take is, if you are either of those extremes, you don't have it right. Mm -hmm. um, so... There's yeah. perhaps a better summary of my point. Yeah, that that adds some more information. Thanks for thanks for adding it. Because to the outsider, yeah, to me, it just strikes me as odd. Like, here's a, a biblical take you may not have heard before, but charity is good. But you know, and now I now I understand where you're coming from, and I appreciate that. Uh, but that will do it for this week's study. Uh, thank you guys for joining. As a reminder, we are going to skip next week due to the Thanksgiving and Black Friday holiday. So we will be off no, uh, November 24th. We will return December 1st with a continuing discussion and study of Acts. In the meantime, if you missed any part of tonight's study, you can listen back on the audio on the Bible study page of my website linked on the homepage. You can use the Bible study page to access anything Bible study related. If you want to contact Robert or contact me, there are references for how to do that. And uh, we hope to see you back on December 1st. In the meantime, have a great Thanksgiving and a great night. Thanks.